Hola, Tarek. Yes, sir. Welcome to our 31st episode of the World Heritage. My name is Stephanie and here with me is Liana. This podcast originally started as part of my and Nilafar's study project. If you're interested to find out how we started the podcast, then please check out episode 30, where Mary and Liana asked us about the challenges we faced as well as the whole process. We also asked them about their motivation to join our team and what we see for the future of our project. Now, that said, let's introduce another star community member of the heritage field. Liana, would you like to do the honors in introducing today's guest? Sure, Stephanie. Would love to introduce my fellow ATSM colleague and friend, Maria Timoteo. Originally from Rio de Janeiro, Brazil, Maria started off her academic journey by studying social history for her bachelor's and continued by completing a master's of art in the same field in the Federal University of Rio de Janeiro. Then she pursued projects as a researcher and teacher in the educational, historical, and cultural fields, particularly with organizations like Brazilian National Council for Scientific and Technological Development, as well as Teco Para Chile. She has basically more than five years of experience in communicating and cultural and educational content to people from diverse backgrounds, and her true passion lies in making education accessible to all. All of these experiences and interests led her to choosing to pursue a master's joint degree in heritage conservation and site management at Brandenburg University of Technology and Helwan University of Cairo. It was hard to sum up your experiences without revealing too much, Maria. How are you? Hello, ladies. I'm fine. Thank you. And I'm really happy to be here. And you make me sound like a very awesome person, which, <laughs> which is not really the case. But thank you for the intro. That is the case. <laughs> We are really happy to have you as well. So that's great. Let's find out more about you through our questions in part one. What drove you to choose to study social history for your bachelor's degree? I was really happy when I saw that you guys were going to ask me that because I never stopped to think about it. Like I'm 29 now and I never stopped to wonder why did I choose to study history? But when I started to think about it, I think it really started in my childhood. I had a very romanticized idea of what a historian is and what this person should do. And I can definitely say that the fact that I watched a lot of Discovery Channel and History Channel really like had an influence on this choice. I had this idea that if I was a historian, I would be able to travel the world in search of, you know, archaeological findings and that, you know, I would have all this knowledge about everything that happened in the world since the beginning of times. And I really had this in my mind. But then when I was uh, in high school and I had to decide which, you know, which career to follow, I actually chose to study for medicine because everybody was telling me, you have no money if you are a historian. This is not like a career. You should do something else. And then I was like, okay, so I'm going to do medicine. But then I already had registered to all the universities because in Brazil, there is a big national exam and you just do this exam and depending on your grades, you can decide which type of career you want to apply to. So I already had study for just like biology, chemistry, physics, and so on. And then two months before the exam, I was so overwhelmed with the studying all of these things that they were interesting, but they were not my passion. And I was just like, I couldn't take it anymore. And I went there and I say, okay, I want to change. I want to do history. I don't want to do this anymore. So that's how I end up doing my, you know, bachelor in social history. 
I didn't know we had that in common because I also started with vet medicine. <laughs> okay. Totally yeah, I mean, we, we went for, you know, whatever was practical in terms of, yeah, financial situation, but... Nice. Now we get to be poor together. (laughs) Exactly. But at least we followed our hearts, you know? Exactly. So (laughs) you volunteered to be a research assistant in the private jewelry company where you collected actually documents of the family's history and you digitalized them. Could you tell us a bit about this experience? And I want to know if this actually further increased your interest in working in this field of archiving and research. Um, Yes, this was a lovely experience. I worked with them for three years. Their main idea was, okay, they had a person in their family who was 90, like 96 years old, and they wanted to just collect all her memories uh, before she passed. So there were many things we would do. Um, There was a person who was responsible for interviewing this lady. And then uh, we had to, you know, transcript the interviews, but basically we had to create a book about the story of her life. And let's say a big part of this was the fact that she was married with a German man who escaped a second world war and he traveled to Brazil and he lost all his family. He was a Jewish man. He lost all his family. So he had to start everything from scratch in Brazil. And that's where he met Lydia, this uh, lady that we interviewed. So we wrote three books. One was about her childhood and her times before she met him. Then the other one was about the first years of her marriage when they were um, striving to, you know, survive and build a life together. And the third one was about the later years of the marriage when they already had children. And then her son became the most famous Brazilian jewel maker. I don't know if I said it right, but jewelry maker. Yeah. So it was very interesting. And yes, this, this project really made me fascinated about, you know, oral history. That basically means that, you know, you go and you interview your, let's say, historical sources, and then you transform their interviews into historical narrative uh, that is written. Um, This to me is something that is extremely special because when you study history in university, you are mainly focused on reading documents or, you know, like reading, I don't know, data that was collected 200 years ago. But when you talk about oral history, it's something totally different and you need to have also different skills. And of course, we also had a lot of uh, work in like digitalizing their documents because the family wanted us to create a small archive of their own history. So photos of the family, passports, documents, letters, um, letters that uh, the husband of Lydia would receive from his family in the first years that he was living in Brazil before they were killed. So it was very interesting. That is such a lovely story. I really, really like that one. I mean, that's amazing just to think about her husband coming from Germany to Brazil and then meeting her and you guys have a knowledge about her life, which is extensive. So I really, really love that story. Yeah, actually, there were moments that I would, you know, have chills or that I would literally cry because, for example, we had access to the letters that his family was sending him. And you could see in the letters that 
his family that was still in Germany, they were worried that they wouldn't be able to, you know, survive the situation. But at the same time, they were trying to tell him not to worry because they knew that he was far and there was not much he could do. So it was, yeah, it was like, I still have chills when I talk about this now. I still have chills because it was really, really special. It was really unique, beautiful story. Yeah, it's very sad, but we are very glad that you shared this with us and the community. So um, since we are on the subject of digitalization right now, how much, in your opinion, does di digitalizing impact the conservation of heritage? Is it faster or how effective do you find it in the long-term sustainability? I think digitalization has, uh, you know, some very important let's say, pros or gains when we talk about conservation and preservation of documents. I think the first and, you know, most obvious one is the fact that if you digitalize, for example, I would digitalize in this project a letter from the family of this immigrant, right? And then whenever I have to write about it or if I have to consult it, I don't need to go back there, open the letter again. I can just go in the computer and check it. And that's much better for the document because we are not, uh, you know, putting our hands on it over and over again. So, of course, then the document will last longer. Then another thing is that when you digitalize something, you can make many copies and you can save them in many different devices. So, of course, if for any reason you were to lose the material uh, object that you are, you know, digitalizing, you would at least have a copy and the knowledge that is in there wouldn't be totally lost. Although, of course, it is not the material knowledge, it's just the content, right? And I also think that it makes the research faster because, once again, if you would have, if I would have to get up, go to another floor, check the closet where are the archives and find a document and come up and write, up, write about it, then of course I'm losing some time in my research when if I just have it in my computer, it's much easier. But of course, I mean, although it makes it faster and, and you know, easier and more practical and a bit safer for the object, in the end you cannot substitute the materiality of things. So this is also something that we have to keep in mind. I totally agree with this and keeping in paper form also is also important because you still need the original documents to cross check and yeah, it's mm. definitely much faster just writing a keyword and then zoop, it's right there. And so because we've done a study project together regarding children education, heritage conservation, I kind of want, I'm really interested in asking you about when you volunteered as a teacher and recreator in Teco para Chile, if I'm saying this right. Uh, could you tell us please about your favorite memory in these preparation of children activities with the children? Yeah, I think my favorite memory was the fact that everything that I planned didn't work, but in the end it was fine. Because when I applied to this project, they told me they needed, let's say, teachers who would go to, you know, these communities and we would develop small classes to the children about cultural differences and, you know, like countries around the world and what is what type of culture they have, what type of religions there are. And of course, I was in my head planning classes. I mean, not like a PowerPoint presentation, but, you know, just some classes with small exercises or like drawing exercises. 
But once we arrived there, slowly our classes started to become just really like huge game sessions. So instead of, you know, sitting them down and okay, now I speak and then you listen and blah, blah, blah. We just basically started to create a lot of games in which they could run around and they could play with each other and they could sweat and they could laugh. And of course, there were some small educational things here and there, like a lot of times we would use math. Um, they had to calculate something during the game or a lot of times they have to translate a word like to English, for example. For example, an apple, they have to figure it out what is the name in English. They have to search it somewhere. But uh, yeah, I think my most special memory is that what I thought I was going to do didn't happen. But in the end, it was fine. And it was much like much funnier for the children and also for me as well. <laughs> yeah, I also volunteered in South Africa once for a couple of weeks. And um, we were also employed as teachers but it was completely different in the end so yes don't relate <laughs> to your story as well yeah just, yeah because in the end like you do have to adapt to also what the children need right and they don't want to sit down and listen to you they maybe they want to play because it's their free time like they exactly. were not at school yeah, yeah exactly <laughs> so as we introduced you already you have a lot of lot of interests and you already did a lot so we wanted to know what the most challenging area you faced was when you were a researcher at the brazilian national council for scientific and technological development yes that is a very very good question and i think a lot of people don't know that when you are a researcher, um, it is not just about sitting your ass in a chair and reading, but it's also about having the creativity to come up with your own questions and your own problems. So for example, I had this position for two years and I had to deliver scientific articles every like four to six months. So to me, what was really challenging was just to have the creativity of coming up with new questions all the time, because sometimes you just don't have a question. And that should be fine, of course, but if somebody is you know, paying you a salary to write about something, then you do have to come up with questions. So I think that you know, as a researcher, a really big challenge is to have this creativity of always finding you know, the, the topic that you want to write about, and having the right question in your mind all the time and having different questions as well. And at the same time, you know that you can never fully answer those questions. So you would just like to go deeper into that. But then, of course, you cannot because you are also paid for giving, let's say, for, for producing small articles and not just like a huge thesis of 500 pages. So... Once you find a question, you're like, yay, I had the creativity of coming up with something, then you cannot go deeper into that because you just have to write an article about it. So I think that was the biggest challenge. It's like, besides the reading and everything, is to have these, you know, availability of always thinking about new topics. Thank you so much for like this insightful answer, actually, because it kind of uh, makes me think about the problems with researchers in academia, like how they're supposed to produce, produce, yep. produce, 
and not really just just so that they can have publications for example for the university and stuff like this and it's sometimes it's it's irrelevant when writing about something and it's just yeah there's no real answer to it just just to add your number you know to on there so yeah now um we're gonna take a short break with a little game yeah, so I'm going to be sharing my screen to show you a slideshow of two different World Heritage sites and ask if you would rather do this or that. Does that sound simple enough? So, would you rather hike up Machu Picchu on a really, really hot, scorching day or West Norwegian Ford on a freezing cold day? Machu Picchu. I hate heat, but Machu Picchu is on my wish list since many years. So, next one. Would you rather learn how to prepare kimchi in the Republic of Korea or learn to craft gingerbread in Northern Croatia? Wow. Although I am not the best when it comes to spicy food, I think I would like to learn how to prepare kimchi because I'm obsessed with Korea. So next one, would you rather learn how to dance the Budima dance in Zambia or learn how to sing Sankirtana, the ritual singing, drumming, and dancing of Manipur, India. Obviously, they are both inscribed as intangible cultural heritage in UNESCO. How can I say? I've, I'm a really shy person. And it seems like in both of them, I would have to go out of my shell a bit to do something different. I really love the idea of drumming and singing, though. I'm not good at singing. Uh, I just go to my karaoke once in a while, you know. But I think I would go with the Indian one, actually. But yeah, that's basically would you rather, like to pick between two hard options. And I tried to make it World Heritage Inspired. And yeah, so thank you for playing with us. Thank you. That was really fun. <laughs> I'm glad you guys had fun. Now, dear listeners, you know that usually we have a part two and part three, but we are playing a little bit with the format and we will now try to merge those into one. So if you're ready, Maria, then let's start. Yes. Right now, you're working as a tour guide for a company based in Berlin. You worked for them before the pandemic as well, right? And now we can sort of say we are adjusting to a post-pandemic phase. I hope. <laughs> How different would you say are both of these experiences? Is there more preparation involved now? I mean, I would really need um, a bit more of time to give you a better answer because we just reopened two weeks ago. Um, but what we can definitely say that is different now is just that we are still so unsure about how everything is going to continue. Um, before, let's say 2018, 2019, we already knew that summer are, you know, is the, the season where we have, you know, thousand tourists per day. And we know that we need, you know, 40 tour guides per day in the square. And right now it's just like, okay, are we even going to have a group today or not? And it's really difficult because you have to be extremely flexible with your schedule and with your availability. But at the same time, because this is an activity that is not giving you so much income right now, you also need to have another side job. And then it's very hard to, you know, manage the two things at the same time. Um, I also see that at least for, you know, tours, people are really 
excited to have them back because it's an activity that is that is in the open air. So I think people feel a bit safer also doing something that is not in a closed space. Um, but yeah, I would say that right now, the question was, you know, is there more preparation involved? Actually, right now, there is not much of preparation because we have to be so open to just change everything in case we need to, because we just don't know what is going to happen. Maria, could you tell us about the current tours you're doing? Like, how is the tour conducted? Do you have the freedom to add in stops or remove stops? Or is it entirely done by the company? Um, well, at the moment, I am used to offering two types of tours. Um, the first one is the main city tour that we have. And this is pretty much, um, I would say, 85% of the tour is pre-established. So I do have to stop in, you know, I would say seven places that the company wants me to. And this is in the city center of Berlin. And this tour is more of a big introduction. So we go from the Prussian times and we start in the Brandenburger Gate and we finish in Checkpoint Charlie and we talk about the fall of the Berlin Wall. The other tour that I offer is a, a Third Reich tour. So a tour about Second World War and the Nazi genocides. Um, this one, I have more freedom. Actually, I can decide where I want to go. How do I want to talk about it? And I personally, have, I had to change the model that I used to do because before the pandemics, this tour lasted three hours and a half. And now it has to last maximum two hours. So to me, it was really hard. I had to cut a lot of the things. But how I do it now is that in the first half of the tour, we visit the many memorials that we have in Mitte for the different groups um, that were persecuted by the Nazis. And then the second half, we visit Hackshare Market, which used to be known as the Jewish Quarter of Berlin. So yeah, one tour is more like um, with a fixed framework, and the other one is up to the tour guide to decide how he wants to do it. So I already know this one, but I love hearing about it every time. And I'm sure that our listeners will have a laugh listening to this. Could you please name us top three most stupid and common questions asked by tourists on your tour? Yes, I love this. <laughs> Simply because I just sometimes I don't believe that people can ask me these things. So I think the number one most common question that I ask and that to me is, is honestly like the most stupid one is what tour do I have today? Like they arrive there and they don't know what they bought, what they want to see. And we have, uh, I would say, six different tours. And they arrive at the Brandenburger tour, which is where we start the tour. And they just say, hey, what tour do I have today? And you have to be like, okay, do you have a ticket? Like, do you remember what you wanted to see? Do you have something? In my life? No, about Berlin, something about Berlin. It's like, come on, you know, just try to put an effort, you know. Then the second one that is always, always, always there is once we start the tour and, you know, we give the intro and we are walking towards our first stop, people will always come to me and they are like, so do you live here? And it's just like, because I say that I'm from Brazil, right? And then they are like, 
okay, so do you live here? It's like, no, I live in Brazil and I come to work every day. I take an airplane of nine hours and I come. (laughs) (laughs) I come to Germany just to do this tour for you. Exactly. It's like, because they, they literally ask me this because they know that I'm not German. So they ask, okay, but do you live here? And it's like, I just don't understand how it would work in their minds. And the third one, I mean, it's sad to say this because I don't like to say, oh, people, they don't know nothing about history and they are so stupid because of course not everybody should know everything about history, but there's just some small things, you know, that you should know. And this question is related to history and it's like, in which side of the Berlin Wall was Hitler? And I'm just like, um, darling, I'm not sure if you understood in the last two hours that, you know, these things happen in different moments of history and one thing has nothing to do with the other. And this literally comes after I already explained about Second World War and about the Berlin Wall. And then this is in the end when the person is processing everything and they are just like, oh, she didn't mention which side Hitler was on. Let me ask her, you know, and it's just like, <laughs> I feel really like a bad tour guide when they ask me this because it means that they were not paying attention to anything. They were just taking selfies. Well, I mean, <laughs> I, think, I think you have like such people and such people because I also think that you have probably some experience also with like very lovely people and like experiences with like the most smart questions actually which yeah. you might not have had an answer to did you come across something like that yes actually um i mean there are people who ask me really complex things that i cannot really give them a yes or no answer you know i think one of the probably the most usual questions regarding this is more like oh did German people know what was happening during like the Holocaust, for example, or how did the German people feel? Like, this is a question that I cannot answer because you cannot know, right, what people thought and what they felt. But another part of the tour that I really enjoy um, and I really feel that people give a lot of intelligent, uh, you know, contributions is when we visit the Holocaust Memorial, that is such an abstract construction, And at the end of the visit, I always ask them, okay, just share your impressions. Like, how did you feel? Do you like it? Um, What do you think the design is supposed to represent? And a lot of times people give me so many interesting explanations. For example, in the tour that I was Saturday, and Liana was in the tour, by the way, uh, there was this guy who said, you know, that he really paid attention to the contrast between between shadow and light in the memorial and that he felt that this was always also like really representative of, you know, the life of the victims, that some people, they had a happy ending, they survived and they saw the light at the end of everything and other people, they found a darker corner and, you know, something really terrible happened to them. And this was something that I never thought and I've been there, going there for like one year every day. So to me, it's always really nice when people contribute with their own, you know, ideas, because of course, as a tour guide, or also, you know, when you work as a teacher, you don't want to be the only source of knowledge, like you want people to have a dialogue with you and to exchange, right? And this is also a really nice thing about this tour, for example, and about Berlin, like people really like to talk about the topics that are surrounding Berlin, and it's pretty cool. 
just another story that really impresses me with like the shadow and light and yeah i probably wouldn't have thought about it either but that was a really smart one i i can agree with this <laughs> yeah it was really the first time i heard that yeah that was really nice I just want to say quickly that I 100% recommend Maria's tours, just not because we're friends, just 100% recommend. It was really enlightening and really fun to have that conversation and hearing everybody's thoughts. Probably that guy was an architect, must be. <laughs> Otherwise, no one would have, <laughs> or some artist, something, I don't know. Anyway, yeah. I mean, I don't know, really, sometimes people, they are just really, you know, sensitive and sensible when they come up with these things and is really nice that they are so open to talk about this when they are on vacation, right? Because these people, they are on vacation, they are having fun, but then out of a sudden they are confronted with maybe a topic that is really heavy and complex and they are still able to give really interesting contributions. And I think it's lovely when we have these people in the tour. And thank you, Diana, for your compliments. <laughs> So what's your favorite dish in Rio de Janeiro? And could you recommend any restaurant in Berlin to our listeners and us, of course? My God, this is the most difficult question of the whole interview because it's very hard to choose my favorite thing. But I would say, although now I'm a vegetarian and I can only eat the vegetarian version of this dish, My favorite dish is not really a dish, it's an appetizer, and it's called coxinha, which basically means little ties. Uh, and it's like, um, you know, it's a dough made of potato, and it is uh, covered with breadcrumbs, and it's fried, like deep fried. And then inside of it, you usually have a Brazilian cream cheese and the chicken. So it's really, really yummy, it's really fat, but it's really like a comfort food that's You know, you eat and every bite is like oh, paradise. And nowadays it became really common in Brazil to do this uh, using a fruit. Oh my God, now I forgot the name of the fruit. But instead of chicken, you use a fruit and you season it with salt and, you know, all the things that you would do with the chicken. So I really recommend it. It's coxinha. And in terms of the restaurant, I mean, I just know about one nice Brazilian restaurant and we have it here in Berlin. It's called Tapioqueria and it is in Frederikshain. They do have coxinha and they have the chicken one and the one made with the fruit that I forgot the name. So I highly recommend to go there. They have also other types of Brazilian appetizers and they have some like four or five Brazilian meals, like dishes. So yeah, it's tapioqueria and it's in Frederikshain. Sounds super delicious. And now <laughs> diving back into um, student life, as we all know, the ATSM students were, you're usually meant to travel for their exchange to Cairo in the third semester and kind of going to open up my own wounds here and ask the hard question. It was kind of a struggle to say this sentence. <laughs> yeah, we didn't get to go to um, Cairo for us for our year. How hard was it for you actually, Maria, to adapt to an online semester without ever meeting your professors and fellow colleagues? In I was really frustrated, I have to tell you. And these pandemics also, like I've I had pretty much ups and lows because I think the university life really like helped me to feel really frustrated and to feel really like uh, sad with how everything turned out to be. And as I told you in the beginning, 
the reason why I studied history was, you know, this romantic idea that I had that I would one day go to Egypt and, you know, be an archaeologist. And of course, when I subscribed to the program at BTU, although I was much more mature, right? But I still had that idea at the back of my mind. And not going to Egypt was like a blow in my heart. It was just like something that the inner child in me just really, really wanted to do because I think Egypt is such a beautiful, inspiring place for all of us who study the humanities. Like we know that this is one of the most ancient civilizations in the world. And we just have this curiosity of going there and seeing things. Um, I think it was pretty strong blow. And I would say that the experience of not knowing the teachers and having to get to know them online and also having to get to know my colleagues uh, was not the best. I would say some teachers were able to do it better than others, of course. Um, but I do feel that it was just, you know, 20% of what it could have been had we gone to Egypt, had we seen these people in person and had we also had the chance to, you know, just visit Cairo and be there and visit the sites and the museums that we were talking about in in the classes so yeah i'm a bit frustrated with that yeah it's it's very frustrating if you are thinking about doing something and then it doesn't work i can not relate to the egypt situation but i can relate to like applying for a semester abroad and then getting the information that yeah you can now study with an eight hour time difference okay good so let's do it. Yeah. Well, <laughs> so also during the semester with Helvan, you had the opportunity to volunteer as a cultural heritage consultant, cooperating with a professor in Helvan. Could you tell us a little bit about the experience of working on a nomination of an Egyptian cultural site? And if not, because of some reasons, maybe give some insights to students who aspire to working on something like this. Yeah, I was really happy when uh, one of our teachers from Hell One, she wanted to know if anybody was willing to help her in writing this nomination for an Egyptian site. And uh, so, yeah, basically I just got the opportunity through her. Like she expressed that she was searching for someone and I immediately wanted to because I really liked the classes that we had in BTU about you know the UNESCO Her uh, World Heritage Committee and so on and uh, yeah I think the experience was really intense because she needed a draft in 10 days and she wanted me to start from scratch and of course I was not in Egypt so I couldn't visit the site I had never been in this site so it was basically like okay I have to research everything on the internet and create a nomination saying why this place is so important without ever being there or ever, you know, talking to people who go there. So that was really challenging. And, you know, I did my best, of course. And I'm happy to know from her that the draft is accepted and is moving forward. But of course, um, I think now looking back, I know that this could have been done in a different way. And in a much better or I would say even like much more thoughtful or how can I say careful way as well. 
what do you hope to do then after graduation? Like your experiences are like really vast. Museums, archiving, tourism sector, heritage education, just to name the few. Um, so yeah, kind of thinking here, what's your dream job and what are you aspiring for in this field? Like maybe the direction, if not uh, the specific goal. Yeah, I mean, come on, can you have a harder question than that? I mean, this is something that I think about every day. And of course, I'm not 100% sure. But I mean, there's one thing I know is that I am good and I really enjoy communicating, you know, historical knowledge with people. Uh, and I think that my direction would be going towards a heritage interpretation um, in a way that you can digest difficult content and just provided to people from different backgrounds who maybe have never heard about this uh, topic before and still, you know, be able to make them feel connected with the heritage site or maybe the artifact and so on. So I would say I'm really interested in staying in the field of heritage interpretation, heritage education. I really love and I've been studying for many years um, the colonial theories or post-colonial theories and I think they give us a really interesting key into reinterpreting history and re-narrating events of the past or, you know, the way that a heritage site can be perceived, for example. I'm saying that specifically also because I come from Brazil and we have really strong history of colonialism. And the way we've always interpreted our heritage is from an Eurocentric perspective of, okay, whatever was built by the Portuguese is the beautiful heritage that we want to preserve. And, you know, the indigenous community or communities or the African communities that arrived in Brazil, they didn't bring anything to us. And this is a narrative that you have ever since you are in school. And of course, once you start to study and you start to get more information, you realize that that's totally not the, the case. And, you know, uh, there are so many contributions from non-European uh, cultures that we have in Brazil and that we should express and we should empower and so on. So I would really love to continue in this field of heritage interpretation and education using my historical background uh, and these decolonial theories to, you know, empower certain narratives that are not mainstream. That's what I see myself doing. That's a good plan. I really like it. Also the story about like Portugal and the Portuguese monuments in Brazil. Yeah. I think you're on a good path. <laughs> oh, thank you. I mean, I think we have to follow with something that talks to our hearts also, you know, it's like, to me, the biggest challenge that I have at the moment is to balance my desires and my passions with something that can be uh, profitable, right? So I think this is a challenge that all of us have, uh, but, you know, with a bit of patience and maybe taking a bit more years than people who study engineering or medicine would take, I think we can slowly get also into what we like and what we love. Yes, I think so. I can agree okay. with you. <laughs> So um, we are already almost finished. So we have one last question for you, which is what is your favorite World Heritage Site and why? Wow. Okay, that's a very nice question. And yeah, I discovered this site 
thanks to BTU actually, because even though I come from Rio, and it just you know goes to show how bad these type of heritage are being like treated. Um, I discovered this site, which is a site in Rio where I live, and I had never been there. And I discovered it when I was studying BTU and when I was researching. This is called the Valongo Varf. And this is a part of the harbor in Rio in which um, more than 4 million African people arrived during the colonial period. And from there, um, they would be uh, sent to work as slaves. And this site was inscribed in the UNESCO World Heritage List in 2018 as the first site that talks about the sensitive topic of slavery memory. And, um, you know, it was inscribed, inscribed also as a site of consciousness. Um, and what I really love about this site is because it is not just about, you know, how tragic it was, but it is about how these people found so many strategies to survive and to resist and to fight against a system that was, you know, overwhelming to them. And I think this site really inspired me to continue my studies in the topic of colonialism. And this site showed me, you know, in what type of places I would like to work in the future. And as I said, I lived in Brazil and I had never heard about this because there's not enough, you know, publicity, there is not enough talk. You have to really go and search for it by yourself, right? And yeah, I think this site to me at this moment is the most inspiring one. You know, I would not say my favorite because of course it's not a happy place, but it's the most inspiring one, the one that, you know, helped me to learn so much and the one that, you know, I, I envision when I talk, when I think about, you know, what can we do in the future of heritage management. Thank you so much, Maria, for taking the time to share your story with us today and giving us such amazing insights into your life, but also in the field of heritage. I think a lot of people can agree when I say they learned a lot from your talk, also about like the colonialism in the end. Thank you. <laughs> we hope you have had fun with us. And also we hope that you have a great semester ahead of you. And thanks to all our listeners also for supporting the podcast along the way. We've had such a pleasure to see our classmates, even if it was on the screen, and get to know them more and are excited to share all their stories with you guys. Absolutely. Thanks, Maria. Be sure to check out next week's 32nd episode where we have a chat with ATSM student Jane. Jane received her BA in archaeology and ancient history from her home country, Australia. She then aimed to gain a variety of experiences working for different museums. Finally, she is here in Cottbus for a joint master's degree in heritage conservation and site management at the Brandenburg University of Technology and Hunan University of Cairo. So listeners, stay tuned for that episode. Interested in sharing your thoughts and stories? Feel free to contact us. You can reach us on Instagram, The World of Heritage, or email. Thanks again for tuning in. Ciao, arrivederci, vi son flat and goodbye.